James Baldwin Seminar Room in the Department of Ethnic Studies, the first Department of Ethnic Studies in the Eastern U.S., at Bowling Green State University, the first university to require a cultural diversity course of all of its students. This is Real CRT, and I'm joined here with my panel of students and experts and fellow thought outlaws. I'm, I'm here with Alex, I'm here with John Jama, I'm here with Cheris, and I'm here with Dr. Whitfield. Uh, it's been quite a week in the news of CRT. Uh, I, I ran across a couple of things. There's been new bills introduced. There's been a bill banning CRT in Indiana. There's been a new one introduced in Missouri, which is the second one introduced this session, because the first one, I guess, was not vicious enough for the author of this bill. And uh, another one uh, introduced in Oklahoma. It's the one in Missouri I find really interesting. I want to just talk about for a minute. Uh, this this is uh, Senate Bill number 694, introduced by uh, State Senator. Oh, where is he here? Oh, State State Senator Rick Bratton. State Senators Rick Bratton, and uh, Rick Bratton introduced this bill, and he wrote in his newsletter last week that. Uh, he has to ban uh, CRT uh, because uh, he says CRT is teaching a new form of racial discrimination in our schools. CRT must be combated for the subversive and politically motivated movement it is. And that starts with passing this bill. He says, this can't wait until next year. The governor should call an extra session and we should join the likes of Texas, Tennessee, Arizona, and others and say no to critical race theory in our school. That was last week. Um, I noticed also he's he just, uh, interesting coincidence, guys. He uh, introduced his CRT bill about the same time he announced he's going to run for Congress. Yes, so he's running for the 4th Congressional District in Missouri. And during his announcement for his congressional bid, he wrote... Uh, we need to secure our border, hold China accountable for its trade practices, and stop liberals from using CRT and other woke policies to brainwash our children into hating America. Okay. Um, for all of you, this is uh, Rick Bratton's Christmas card. This is Rick. I'm holding up Rick Bratton's Christmas card in which he and his lovely family, his wife and uh, five kids, are all holding various firearms. Merry Christmas, love Jesus. Um, so uh, 
this is this is the uh, this is the folks in Missouri pushing this this law, and this this bill does many of the same things that other anti-CRT bills do. Um, it specifically prohibits quote the teaching about the 1619 project or any successor theory or concept. That's very interesting. Any successor theory or concept. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty blank check if you ask me. Um, and it also says here, oh yes, it, well, it, it prohibits forcing teachers to discuss any current or controversial topic of public policy or any particular social issue. So that seems to carve out a large piece of the curriculum besides the 1619 project. Uh, so uh, these, these bills seem to keep uh, marching along. Um, what, what, have, what have you guys seen or heard or thought about this week? So just an initial thought about, uh, was it Bratton? Is that his name? Bratton. Yes. yes. Uh, Monsilla Bratton's uh, platform there. And, you know, this kind of trifecta he's hitting, you know, the hold China accountable, secure our borders, and, you know, ban CRT. And, like, these are all very precisely targeted towards prominent non-white groups, right? He's got a thing there for anti-basically anti-black racism, anti-Asian racism, and anti-Hispanic racism. So I guess I want to congratulate him on being inclusive in that <laughs> regard. He's multicultural. He is yes. certainly being multicultural in his white nationalism. Um, and, you know, this whole idea of, like... Uh, you know, banning the teaching of controversial topics is so wild and that it's, you know, and one of the things that's like kind of the backfire of the anti-CRT push, which this podcast is a part of, is it is drawing attention to critical race theory. Like it's an intellectual movement or, you know, a system of ideas thrives on people studying it. And when you introduce a bill to ban something that no one had heard of previously, you know, that your constituents had never heard of previously, yes, in a lot of cases, it's, uh, you know, obviously just sort of this codified, you know, I'm not racist, but you know, statement. But it does have this side effect of it being very self-defeating in that these anti-CRT legislatures are getting a lot of people interested in critical race theory, many of whom probably wouldn't have been otherwise. So, I don't know, I guess if I was on his, you know, campaign committee, I might ask him to, you know, rethink what his goals really are. Yeah, I, I should mention, I, I, I did a little researching and found that uh, Senator Bratton uh, was the author of a bill in 2015 that would have stripped all college athletes of their scholarships if they engaged in protests. Uh, the, this, the bill that he introduced, quote, uh, uh, rescinded a college athlete's scholarship if, quote, the athlete calls, incites, supports, or participates in any strike or concerted refusal to play a scheduled game, unquote. Uh, so that's, 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 the, that's the, the, the author of our current CRT bill. Um, so, um, what else are we thinking about? 
Um, I think what concerns me about that, that whole project is when you say you're anti-CRT in these bills, that's book banning, right? Like that's what's being proposed, banning concepts, banning free discussion, banning free speech. You know, instead of calling that out, sometimes we don't call it what it is, banning speech around certain topics in schools. Mm -hmm. Well, at least Senator Bratton is consistent. He's banning athlete speech, and now he's banning their teacher's speech. I mean, I've seen a similar rhetoric come out of one of our local politicians at the state level, um, and she's, she's planning, you know, one of these moves from uh, Ohio Senate to Congress uh, nationally. And, it, and I see the same anti-CRT, anti-immigration rhetoric coming off her socials, um, it fires up this base of support, which, which I, I think is dwindling. If I can interject, um, I just hope that we all can become a little bit more perceptive on how much of this pushback against CRT is just a continuation of the moral majority's goal. It's all about mobilizing conservative votes because now that pushing for segregation and stricter Jim Crow laws don't work, and because the pro-life movement now is just kind of sort of played out and just very blasé now, um, people have started to shift toward critical race theory. And in a new study from the COVID States Project, which is from scholars from Northeastern, Harvard, Northwestern, and Rutgers, they found that around seven out of 10 Americans cannot correctly articulate what critical race theory is. So I just hope that the conservative party realizes you are being played. You are being played for your votes, your senators, your Congress people, your politicians. They want you to be outraged over something that you do not know of, that they really do not know of for your votes. And I truly do not believe that they would care either way what critical race theory is. All they know is that it sounds scary to you, and that anything that sounds scary, some esoteric other that they can mobilize their voter base around, that's what's going to get them votes, that's what's going to get them power and money, and that's what they care about. Um, trying to remember, um, you read this is Senator Bratton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, did he end his statement using the word woke? It was in the statement. It wasn't the last word, but yes, he woke policies to brainwash our children. Yes. Okay. I decided in the last 15 minutes, if you are a white nationalist and you are opposed to critical race theory, um, and maybe even white people in general, given their relative privilege, you don't get to use that word woke. Um, my Googling has informed me that this term originates from the 1930s and 40s, from the blues, lead belly specifically. So it is a cultural and linguistic term and appropriation for an awareness of issues affecting specifically African-Americans. So when I hear you say anyone from here on out, the woke mob, you are in fact telling me the nigger mob. You're not allowed to use that term anymore. And um, makes sense. Those are my thoughts on Senator Bratton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
There's also news this week that uh, pressure from the uh, some level of the Tennessee government, uh, it might actually be from Tennessee Governor Bill Lee, pressure on the University of Memphis to eliminate its plan to encourage faculty to integrate social justice ideas into their classes, a plan for which the university was going to pay professors uh, $3,000 for release time to upgrade their teaching and their, their syllabi. Uh, beginning this semester, uh, the University of Memphis has scrapped that plan uh, because, quote, according to Governor Lee, the University of Memphis informed my office that the initiative will not move forward. Uh, we welcome robust debate on college campuses, but taxpayer dollars should never be used to fuel a divisive radical agenda. So uh, apparently in 2022, the idea of social justice is a radical divisive idea. Uh, there well, we go. I don't disagree with that. Not in this country. And you could, you could say since the enlightenment that is um, radical and an affront to um, capitalist systems. Thoughts? The more I think about it, I, I feel like the discussion around CRT is getting into some very strong parallels into the historical controversies around global warming and the controversies around evolution in that there is, it's a case of there are two sides of the debate, but only one side is educated about the issue. And the other side is largely motivated by, you know, vested political interests. Like you're talking about, you know, getting their base riled up about something to be scared of uh, in this case, which is very much the case with, you know, early controversies about evolution. This idea that it was seen as a threat to sort of, you know, to Christian beliefs, to the church, to our traditional values, our way of life um, with uh debates around climate change you know is much more tied up in you know a very kind of small handful of elites in the form of energy companies who really didn't want to have any narratives that might imply they were doing something bad um but in 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 all three of these cases we see an angle by which the state is attempting to regulate the university in a way that is clearly in bad faith and is clearly about sort of, you know, creating an image that makes them look good, right? It, it, you know, that so to much- some folks, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, um, you know, I think why politicians are reacting so negatively to critical race theory and all the things that they incorrectly assume critical race theory is, is because those are things that question the political systems they are creating. And so basically everything I say on this podcast is targeted towards like an imaginary hypothetical like center conservative white male who is now going through the back episodes of this after we get Dr. Messer Cruz on Joe Rogan. <laughs> and so to my hypothetical, uh, you know, conservative opponent, I want you to think about 
the implications of state control of education. Are those in line with your values? Do you want to have a sort of American Stalinism where we have to teach the party-approved political doctrine that says that we are always on the right side of history and our opponents are always on the wrong side of history. Yeah, that's, that's a good analogy. It just really amazes me at white supremacy's ability to sanitize activist works and then throw them away once they're no longer beneficial to white supremacy. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is Dr. Martin Luther King. He was very radical for his day and even now, but a lot of us would not know that because all that we are taught of King's work is I have a dream, but not his critiques of capitalism and not his critiques of the white moderate. But now that those works are becoming more popularized um, and known for people, this is when we start to see the pushback against teaching critical race theory and teaching the black civil rights movement. It just, it truly amazes me how we in a white supremacist society can so easily co-opt those who have been oppressed by the system, assassinated by the system and commodify their life and death. And then once they're no longer needed can be discarded just like anything else that we could, like we're treating a person's life and legacy as some capitalistic venture. Well, I'm really, I'm really pleased and honored to have Dr. David Stovall with us today. Dr. David Stovall is a professor in the departments of Black Studies and Criminology, Law and Justice at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, Dr. Stovall's work led him to become a member of the design team for the Greater Lawndale Little Village School for Social Justice, I should say La Valita, which opened in the fall of 2005. Furthering his work with communities, students, and teachers, his work manifests itself in his involvement with the People's Education Movement, a collection of classroom teachers, community members, students, and university professors in Chicago, LA, and the Bay Area of San Francisco, who engage in collaborative community projects centered in creating relevant curriculum. Uh, Dr. Stovall earned his PhD from the University of Illinois uh, Urbana-Champaign and he is the recipient of the Derrick Bell Award for Critical Race Theory and Education. He has uh, also the recipient of the Scholar Activist Award from the Critical Educators for Social Justice, uh, the Hometown Scholar Award, which my hometown will never give me. <laughs> and uh, as you all know, because you read the book this week, he is the author of the incredible Born Out of Struggle, Critical Race Theory, School Creation, and the Politics of Interruption, 
And uh, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Stovall. Thank you, Dr. Stovall, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks everybody for having me. Truly appreciate it. So my class uh, spent the last week uh, reading your work and uh, coming up with a number of questions they want to ask you. And we, uh, we then put the questions up on our website, our class website, and they voted for which questions they liked the best. And I'd like to say that I'm going to ask you the questions in the order that they were voted for, but one of the privileges of being the, the professor in a class is that you can reorder things according to what you think they're appropriate. And so I have reordered the questions according to some kind of progression of themes. So, so without further ado, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you these questions. And then once, uh, once you give your answer, we're gonna open it up and let, let people uh, uh, ask you follow-ups and so forth. The first question on my list, and it's a question I'm gonna ask all 14 of our distinguished guest scholars. Of course, we read in the news every day someone making some allegation about CRT this or CRT that. And you and I know that 90% of everything being said about CRT out in the media right now is misleading, inaccurate, or an outright lie. So I need to have from someone who's deeply thought about this, provide a definition of what critical race theory actually is. What is critical race theory in your view, Dr. Stovall? Yeah, thank you for asking that question because in so much of the debate, people try to walk backwards and go into what CRT is not. And I think <laughs> it's really important to say what CRT is, right? And CRT is a critique that originates from a critique of something called critical legal studies. So critical legal studies was started in legal scholarship and it was the argument that the criminal legal system in the United States is a class-based system. Derrick Bell, Kendall Parker, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, Neil Gatanda, they were all reading critical legal studies and saying that critical legal studies is short. The US criminal, the criminal legal system is a system based on race, class, age, gender, ability, sexual orientation is mitigated by those factors. So now when we look at something like critical race theory, two main ideas come forward. One is the idea of racial realism, right? That, that racism is endemic to life in the United States, right? It is written into our constitution. If we look at the three-fourths clause, if we look at the convenience clauses of the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendment, if we look at the ways in which criminal procedures happen in courts in terms of 80% of cases in the United States, um, criminal proceedings never go to trial, right? They're still, they're still decided by plea bargain. And the second thing is this concept of interest convergence, right? And racial realism, realism and interest convergence both come from Derrick Bell. And Derrick Bell says that interest convergence is racial justice will only happen in the United States to the extent that mainstream white society remains in power, right? So this idea of you will only get advancement to the extent that it does not interrupt white supremacy. So this thing around putting that in the fold. So then other folks like Gloria Ladson Billings, 
Bill Tate, Danny Solorzano, Octavio Villapando, uh, Dolores Delgado Bernal, they started reading CRT. And then they started to apply it to education and saying that the US schooling system is one that is still based on a racial hierarchy. If we look at curriculum, pedagogy and praxis. So critical race theory is saying we have to name how racism slash white supremacy operates in society. And in the naming of that, we now choose to do a different set of work. The policies in, that we're calling into question now should always be thought of as maintaining white supremacy, right? So critical race theory is saying, what is the interruption to white supremacy? And how do we look at that interruption as things that could put our work forward to do things differently, i.e. the praxis, the action and reflection in the world in order to change conditions? Indeed, indeed. Uh, this is from Taylor. Uh, Professor Stovall, your book discusses the use of critical race theory as a social praxis to assist in founding schools for urban youth of color. You go beyond the theoretical limitations of CRT and instead worked on the ground with the Greater Lawndale High School for Social Justice to fo focus its practical application within the United States education system that excludes Latino and black youth. Born out of struggle was helpful in understanding CRT's usefulness in urban, poor, and people of color dominated educational settings. How could both your work and CRT as a whole be used in the advancement of youth of color in predominantly white communities where they are being excluded from their education, especially in the youth of color affected in poor white rural communities? Definitely, thanks so much uh, for that question, Taylor. The thing that I think is really important in terms of the contribution of CRT is really understanding that it is highlighting something that we refuse to discuss in the United States, right? And that is racism and white supremacy, right? So this idea, if you think about rural communities, there's actually a couple of folks who do this type of work in terms of CRT in rural areas. So you got uh, Ben Hensingley, who's over at, um, North Carolina, University of North Carolina, um, he's at Western Carolina University. And the thing that really becomes important in their work is saying, we have to come to grips with how racism operates. More importantly, we have to come to grips as to how we either accept the rules and conventions of white supremacy or reject them. Right? And I think this really becomes important when we talk about CRT because CRT is so hot in people's mouths nowadays. And it's interesting, <laughs> right? They're not even really talking about CRT. They're, they're talking about being critical of the historical record, making sure that you know, we're talking about race or removing or erasing the historical record, right? So it's not, CRT is more a buzzword boogeyman than it is actually what they're debating. But I think to your question, it really becomes important to 
have us begin this conversation as to what are we agreeing to and what are we rejecting, right? And if we have students of color in these spaces that are deeply violent, right, in terms of their, their positioning and in terms of what it is that they're doing to that grouping of people of color over time, then it behooves us to say, what are we doing for those folks? And in doing things for folks, are we rewarding them for their capitulation to white supremacy? Or are we willing to do something different? Because I think that's really important when we talk about white supremacy. It's not folks calling you a racial epithet. It's not people burning crosses on your lawn or what have you. That's only one part of white supremacy. And that's a very small part of white supremacy. White supremacy is the assumed views and values of white, Christian, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied men as noble, as normal, right, and good. Right. So now when we get into that particular understanding, now we have we got to call ourselves into question. Now. And to your question, Taylor, I think it's really around CRT is telling white folks to call whiteness into question. Right. It's not around running from that. It's really around saying, how do we how do we perpetuate these things or how do we actively reject them? So you briefly mentioned kind of, you know, how white supremacy is bound up with this set of cultural assumptions that we have, you know, heteronormativity, ableism, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, in your book, you definitely kind of focus in on the way that our sort of unofficial state doctrine of neoliberalism, you know, plays into this. And I think, you know, the average American doesn't think of themselves as a neoliberalist, right? They just think of neoliberal values as like common sense, you know, this is freedom, this is equality, these are all good things. And so I guess I feel like part of why CRT, I mean, besides that, you know, CRT becoming just kind of this flashpoint for acknowledging racism, you know, this kind of metonymy that's become in our state legislatures. But I think it seems that CRT then has this uh, struggle of having to run against the official doctrine of neoliberalism. And I guess, is there, is there a way to sort of, you know, combat racism, uh, unmake racial injustices while still operating within some degree of an American neoliberalist framework? Or does that framework really have to go in order to move forward socially? Right, An excellent question. And I think this is always, I think about a guy named Zeus Leonardo who always who writes about this, right? He talks about a race class dynamic or uh, a good friend of mine says we need to make, the, make it a new word and call it clase. <laughs> I like it. opposed to that kind of looking at the, looking at the dynamic. But to your question, this is the pull that CRT is making. It's questioning neoliberalism because CRT in its original critique was a critique of liberal ideology. And remember, liberal ideology says systems are good, people are bad. Critical race theory was saying systems and people can be bad. 
and systems are created by people. So now that in that critique of neoliberalism, CRT joins up with neoliberal critique and says, none of this is really acceptable because it continues the travail of white supremacy. It continues to blame those who have less for having less, right? So this thing around, so when we think about schools, we see this always in funding equations, right? So a particular school has been disinvested, but then they're blamed and we hear rhetoric like the parents don't care. Well, how can, how can parents engage if resources have historically been removed from that place under the travails of neoliberalism for the last 40 years, right? So this thing around, it's not, it's not looking for a new and better neoliberalism. It's actually leaning more towards abolition and saying, none of this is acceptable. And because none of this is acceptable, here's what we're willing to do. Yeah. I think what a lot of uh, a lot of people who, who, who read your your book uh, were impressed by, born out of struggle, is is the degree to which you step outside of academia and you step into the world that you're studying, and you engage with uh, a real sense of participation in social justice and, and activism, and I, I, I that's that's just really uncommon, and I think it's it's really laudable and. And I think a lot of our questions are, are centered around that. For, for example, um, Shelby asks, uh, Professor Stovall, much of the success of creating a public school that has a commitment to social justice and is informed by CRT, CRT principles is because it was a grassroots built from the ground up effort. Would there be a way for existing schools to adopt the same ideas and practices? Say, for example, could an existing public school in Chicago become a social justice school? Or is this more likely to be successfully implemented when it is a focal point from the very beginning? Right. I think the latter part of that is the correct answer, right? It's, it's much more, it's much, I won't say easier because that's the wrong word, right? It's, it's clearer to envision if you start from the ground up. Right. Because now you're sitting around like you all are at a table. It's people really kind of putting their giving their input It's you saying, OK, what does curriculum look like? What does what do these processes entail? Who will we get as teachers where if you have an existing place now, you got to break that whole place down. You got to say, OK, here's what's existing in this place and here's what has to go. Right. And now you got to get it. You get into the fight around what has to go and what has to stay in a very different way because people aren't there from the beginning, right? And you know, people get in their ways when, especially when you talk about schooling, right? And when people come into a spot and they've been there for 20 years and then somebody says, all right, now we got a total justice orientation. All this other stuff is out the window. People are like, hey, wait, you know, this, <laughs> stuff, this stuff was working for me. Yeah. So we may perceive in our heads, but at the same time, if you talk with young folks, 
in terms of what works, you'll get something completely different. <laughs> but I think that thing around starting from, you have a clearer vision if you start from the ground up in opposed to making that shift in a place that already exists. Let me ask this then. Um, this is from Alex. Uh, Professor Stovall, one of the persistent themes of your book was the difficulty of working with CPS, the entrenched systemic bias of which seemed to trickle down the level to the level of individual schools and is likely to turn suffering from systemic bias trickling down from the city and the state. Does making systemic change to CPS writ large then become a practical goal? And when making efforts at changing systems, how does the strategy unfold for selecting targets, so to speak? Definitely. And thanks for that question, because I actually wish I would have wrote about that more because there's a contradiction in school systems, right? So when you talk about white supremacy and you talk about white supremacy as being uh, all encompassing and totalizing in the United States, schools are part of that. Right. So now systems are never created to destroy themselves. Right. Systems are created to perpetuate themselves. So now it's important to think about what's the different set of work that you would have to do. Right. So that kind of system wide piece never really works for schools because those cookie cutter solutions don't necessarily match on to community needs. Mm. So now what you really have to do is think about this kind of fugitively, right? So the fugitive, the fugitive understanding says you're in a contradiction, right? These places have never been created to do right by black or brown folks, right? They've, that's never been their intention. So now, because that's never been their intention, how do you rise against and create something different knowing that they will contest you at every step, mm -hmm. right? Now, and that's, a, that's something that people have to come to grips with, right? Because when you say to folks, well, look, this shit was never meant to work ever, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. then, then everybody in the space is saying, okay, well, then what the hell are we doing? Right? So right. now when that question comes forward, you now have to say, all right, here's what it means to do these things different. Give you all an example. All of you all in your K-12 experience will have had a teacher that you would think that you would describe as good, right? They knew what they were doing. They engaged you. They were doing all the things that created a conducive space for you all to learn. Now, I want you all to think about that same teacher again. Why was that teacher always in trouble? <laughs> right? So we have to think about systems like that, right? So when you actually are thinking about doing right by folks that the system itself was never intended to do right by, now you have to think about the ways in which you move to create those spaces, understanding that it is never if your detractors will come, but it is when they are coming and how are you preparing yourself for when they come, right? And, it, and there's a contradiction, right? I, I don't wanna run from that, right? Because we gotta face up 
to that reality. And that's a tough one when we're, especially when we're talking about learning, right? Especially when we're talking about learning from a critical perspective, right? So these things we don't necessarily have to run from, but we have to contend with their messiness, right? They're not clear, sanguine, uh, end-to-end linear things, right? You gotta, you gotta grapple with being in that contradiction. Well put. Uh, Trisha asks you, uh, Professor Stovall, throughout your book, you frequently mentioned the significance of utilizing the concepts of uh, uh, Paulo Freire, uh, concepts of critical thinking and analysis. And I'm imagining your students having an aha moment when their life experiences suddenly make sense through this framework. So my question is twofold. In teaching your course, Education, Youth, and Justice, were there any particular topics covered that triggered more emotional responses from your students than others? And in addition, yeah, yeah go ahead, answer that one, and I'll answer the second one. No, go ahead, go ahead, okay. In addition, you mentioned that the assignments for that class required the students to articulate the justice condition to issues they found relevant in their lives. Could you elaborate on some of the issues the students covered in their assignments? I'm curious if the students were confronting if, if the students were confronting uh, what they were confronting then are the same unresolved issues that students are confronting today. Yeah, and I would say they are very much the same. So immigration, interaction with police, housing, healthcare, employment, mm -hmm. right? And we can put education in that too. So those, those were the primary concerns, right? That, those were, so when people were talking about papers and when I actually took my students to present to the Dean of the College of Education uh, at UIC and, and one of, you know, they actually found this video game. Uh, it was called like Death at the Border. And it was literally, it was a shooting game. Oh it had these stereotypical um, Latinx people and you would, you would actually shoot to score points and then they would, they would give you all these categories or what have you. And one of the most interesting things they said about that was, they were like, look, I'm 17 years old. What does this actually do to somebody younger than me in a world that views them like this, mm -hmm. right? So this thing around their introspection was really important because they were putting, they were doing two things. They had the inward facing introspection to say, okay, there's a problem with this. And then they had the outward facing introspection to say, look, we have to join in concert with those larger justice efforts that are addressing these issues, right? And those same concerns, especially under the Trump administration and now moving into, moving into COVID have now been heightened, right? So this thing around those issues that were identified then, and that was, that class was 09, are still very pertinent at the current moment. It's those inward facing questions are what CRT is challenging us to do, right? Mm -hmm. It's saying, look, you can't, this thing, white supremacy isn't this thing external to the human condition. It is the human condition. <laughs> so now right. we have to think about what it means if we're operating uh, with that understanding. So, so 
many of the people in this room are thinking about writing their long project, either a thesis or dissertation. So I'm going to ask the next question, which is kind of a nuts and bolts question about writing, which I think is very important for this group. Uh, this is from Jenna, and she says, Professor Stovall, you mentioned in the introduction to, to your book that it is critical for the activist scholar to intentionally engage the political exercise of claiming space to tell our story, unquote. Throughout the rest of your book, you keep true to the sentiment through sharing your experiences with your audience, writing in the first person. During the writing process, do you ever start to question this approach to writing? Were there certain challenges you faced throughout writing that made you consider changing how you wrote it? By writing your book from a more personal perspective, do you think this text offers a different insight compared to a book that is more, now I'm gonna use the word traditionally academic here? Yeah, and it's a it's a great question because I actually was encouraged by a prof that I had in grad school by the name of Wanda Pillow. And she gave me this anthropological text and it's called Truth and Power. And it's an old text. But what was really important about Truth and Power is he talked about was when what happens when the discipline is interrupted? Right. What happens when you are in certain spaces and the conventions of the discipline don't necessarily allow for a different type of conversation? Right. And with Rosario's piece, and he tells this chilling story. So he was on uh, he was embedded in a community in South America and him and his partner were on a hike one day and it was a collapse and his his partner was killed in a collapse and he can he and he was asking himself this question do i write this or do i leave it alone and walk away he talked about writing was the commitment to those who are no longer here so that they will be remembered for who they are and what they did, right? So for me, that kind of put me on this pathway to looking for who are the people who are writing like this, right? Who is willing to challenge the conventions of the discipline, right? And saying the discipline is one thing that doesn't necessarily exclude your work as scholarship, Right. In fact, the conventions are much more akin to the rules of white supremacy than it is to doing right by the folks that you care about. Right. So this thing around really thinking about what it means to tell a story on your own terms and now saying that this is a convention that we now need to consider, right? So in critical race theory, that's big in terms of testimonial, that's big in terms of counter story because the mainstream white narrative is going to eviscerate and exclude all the things that make the story what it is to the folks who are experiencing it, right? So now to prevent that erasure, you write in the way that you do. Right. So there's a burgeoning field of autoethnography that folks have been doing in sociology, anthro, 
uh, some psychology. So I've seen this in psychology. I've seen this, um, of course, in curriculum and instruction, educational foundations, sociology. So when people say that you can't do this, and this is for all you all, all you grad students, right? When people say that you can't do this, they are fucking lying. <laughs> right? Yes. So we we just gotta we just gotta keep it. We gotta keep it at that level. Now, the responsibility that you all have is now saying, here is the universe of people who are doing work in this way. Right? Because what it's now proving is that you are not saying this in the wind by yourself. There's a whole discipline and litany of people who are doing this work. Now you're educating your advisor and committee members on who's doing this work, right? So if we think about the literature review fugitively, right? In terms of, okay, well, who's really doing this work? And now how am I in conversation with them, right? And not capitulating to the disciplines. Right, but saying here, here's how I am in conversation with people who have willing, who are willing to ask a different set of questions. Excellent, excellent. I think that's a really good note to to, to leave it on. That is very empowering. I want to thank you so much. This has been just awesome. This has been great. I really, really appreciate it. I'm sure we all do. And thank, thank you all so much for those forthright questions because you know it's a lot, it's a lot going on right now. And we are in three pandemics, right? We got white supremacy, COVID, and capitalism. So, you know, oh, it's That's a lot, of, it's a lot of shit going on. So yeah. well, I hope uh, you I hope you and your family stay safe and definitely, yeah. Thank and thanks again, Tim, for inviting me. And it was really good to be in community. Uh, with you all. And, you know, as stuff moves forward, uh, please shoot me an email or what have you. That's for everybody. Um, shoot me an email or what have you. Um, because like I said, I know it's a lot going on. And if you're trying to engage this work fugitively, it can be a lot sometimes. So uh, I'm down to uh, address what I can in the way that I can. That's, that's so generous. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. No, I appreciate y'all. Thanks again. Okay. You stay safe. Stay well. All right, y'all have a good one. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Come on. I just want to be free. Wanna be free. I'll, I'll be brief. Um, the one thing that I will remember um, without having to labor is that um, one should embrace resisting convention, resisting the kind of uh, educational institutions, the kind of ways of approaching uh, intellectual discourse, the ways of approaching disciplines from the framework of individuals and entities that have never wanted to include you.
that's what I will remember. I think a lot of people struggle with this concept of systemic racism because they, again, because they're in this liberalist mindset of racism is an individual's action, right? It's, it's the shouting Southern sheriff. And so our school systems, I think, are an excellent example of how a system can be biased against certain groups. And that, uh, the, for example, the way that schools are funded by local property taxes means that schools for rich neighborhoods have more resources than schools for more than poor neighborhoods. And it just so happens that our rich neighborhoods tend to be predominantly white and our a lot of our poor neighborhoods tend to be predominantly non-white. And so we're not officially discriminating against black people. We're discriminating against something that corresponds with race. And so it's this sort of second order discrimination that becomes baked into the organization of the system and thus the need to change systems in order to not keep, in order to not maintain these cycles of bias and unequal outcome. Mm -hmm. For me, one of the, the most uh, inspiring parts was to see a scholar activist, you know, someone who um, has done work on the ground, um, not just in, in the ivory tower of academia. Um, and, and beyond that, someone who brought humility to that process, who recognized um, uh, his identity as an academic and, and kept that in mind to keep himself in check um, and, and then to, to use his abilities to listen to members of that community. Um, I think it, it teaches a, us a lot about that, that bottom-up approach uh, to redesigning systems, to the question of are systems actually broken or are they operating the way that they were intended to operate? And perhaps if, if it is the second one, uh, a liberation from that system and a redesign from the ground up, that, that centers the communities who are actually involved. So I think that that tutorial uh, was, was, was quite informative and inspiring despite uh, the difficulties of, of the realities on mm -hmm. the ground. I agree. That is exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Stole your thunder. <laughs> no, <laughs> but it just, it just speaks to how important that is though, um, because we can sit here all day and just talk about theory and talk about what marginalized communities should or could do, but none of that really matters if they don't have that information, if they don't have the tools to be able to do that for themselves, because we need to empower communities. We can't just be paternalistic and just show them what they need to do, quote unquote. Um, it's, it's just so important to really put your knowledge into action, to not keep it all within the ivory tower, to make sure that it is accessible and understandable and actionable to communities that it would benefit the most. And that's what I really appreciated about Dr. Stovall's work. Excellent. All right, any last thoughts before we wrap up, guys? Fight the power. <laughs> Always a good note to end on. All right, thank you all. Thank you all again for for your thoughts and your, your comments and your, your wisdom. And uh, look forward to seeing you all next week. That's our show, Real CRT, for this week. 
I am Tim Messer-Cruz. I want to thank my colleagues and collaborators, Cheris and John Jama and Jason and Alex, and also our musical artists, Danilo Prates, Jifa, Airtone, and Texas Radiofish. Until next week, when we have the distinguished Harvard Law Professor Randall Kennedy joining us, this is Real CRT. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory, there is no survival. Let that be realized. One day.